Welcome to Orthopod, a podcast about the people of orthopedics and their stories. We understand that we all play many roles in our careers and lives, and it is these very stories that ultimately inform our successes and failures. Hi everyone, this is Mo Bandari from Orthopod. Today we have uh, Dr. Jason Bussa with us in studio. Jason, welcome. Um, He's an associate professor of anesthesia. He's the associate director for the Center of Medicinal Cannabis Research. He's published well over 250 papers, and these are papers, uh, many of them, in high-quality journals such as JAMA and BMJ and New England. No. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But it's going to happen any day. Any day now, right? It's it's in the works. It's in the works. Um, And he has what? Uh, it sounds to me, anyways, that you've had countless, countless graduate students. You've mentored many, many students over the years. I mentored a number. I could count them if I had to. <laughs> right, right. And by countless, we mean one. Yes. Uh, but anyways, um, what's on your mind? Uh, well, happy to be here today and sort of talk <laughs> about things that are going on. Yeah. Uh, I guess the main things I've been working on lately have either been looking at opioids in terms of their potential for treating chronic pain yep. and also looking at medicinal cannabis and sort of similar things as well. So how how, how does the um, area differ? Like, So without getting into the nitty-gritty of the actual research findings, things like that, when, you, when you've looked at opioid research and cannabis research, which one right now are they are they fundamentally the same in terms of the general types of issues you're you're facing or are they different and how did you get into cannabis research i guess there so there 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 is overlap and the reason for the overlap is why i ended up getting into both to some degree so yeah. what happened with opioids is back in the 1980s there was a big push by industry to uh, rebrand pain as the fifth vital sign to really Put yeah. it on the radar of yeah. clinicians and say, you've been missing this with your patients. You need to start to focus on treating pain much more aggressively than you have in the past. And if you want the big gun to treat pain, go to an opioid. It's yeah, the yeah. most powerful analgesic we had. Right. And it had been used for cancer-related pain, palliative care for many years. It had not been used for chronic non-cancer pain because of concerns of what happens with long-term use. What's the potential for dependence, for addiction? Uh, and the companies were very good at, at disarming those concerns and putting out aggressive marketing campaigns saying it's not really very addictive, it's not a problem, it's highly effective. And it worked. There wasn't a lot of evidence behind it, but they changed prescribing practices predominantly in North America. And you saw rates of opioid prescribing for things like chronic back pain uh, or, or you know a chronic knee pain. Yeah really start to skyrocket Uh, and it took a long time before the evidence started to catch up with practice and so I think we're now starting to get to that tipping point people have started to recognize that the potential for harms was greater than we thought yep Uh, the benefits are smaller than we had hoped right and there's now this big push to move away from opioid prescribing they're even looking at opportunities for opioid free surgery There was a recent trial that came out in the Canadian Medical Association Journal looking at uh, pediatric orthopedic uh, surgical procedures, uh, fairly minor ones, where they looked at providing them with NSAIDs versus opioids perioperatively. The outcomes were the same, but the adverse events were less in the NSAID group. So I think 
this shift is now starting to happen more and more. There's a problem of an overcorrection, but but that's kind of what's happened with opioids. So tell me a little bit about the guideline that came out that I think has had pretty, I mean, I, I, I mean so you were the, would you be the fundamental lead of that guideline or were there other, I mean, you, you, I, were, it was, you definitely it was, were the spokesperson, right? For, yeah, it for, was for. it was a big team. I was the principal investigator <laughs> right. on that project. Uh, so what had happened is there was a guideline that came out in 2010 right. in Canada. And that guideline primarily focused on how do you prescribe opioids for chronic pain? And right. it didn't spend a lot of time asking the question, should, you? should we <laughs> yeah, prescribe right, right, opioids right, for yeah, chronic yeah. pain? Uh, so we were tasked by Health Canada to update and revise that guideline. And okay. so we did take a, a, a different approach. Okay. And what we ended up uh, coming up with, which uh, it's always difficult to do research in controversial areas oh. because you have camps that are highly polarized. Yeah. <laughs> there was a large group of patients and clinicians that were very enthusiastic about the role of opioids in managing chronic right. non-cancer pain. There was a large group that was completely opposed to it. Right. And so we tried to get representation and hear from both these camps. Uh, we spent a lot of time establishing our patient values and preference statement. We spent a lot of time looking at the evidence. And what we ended up coming out with was it's not a simple yes/no answer. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of patients for whom opioids are probably not a good route to go down at all. People with a, a current a substance use disorder, for example, uh, or or a current active mental illness. These would be people at higher risk for developing problems with opioids. Uh, and even for individuals without these issues, opioids don't provide important pain relief for most individuals with chronic non-cancer pain. The longer you use them, the less effective they become. Right. The longer you use them, the greater the likelihood you're going to develop some element of physical dependence. Well, if they become less effective and you become more dependent the longer you use them, then it's hard to get off them. Right. And so it's, it's not a great option, but we ended up coming out with the guideline saying the evidence says opioids are not first-line therapy for chronic non-cancer pain. But... If you don't have certain risk factors, and if you've tried everything else, and you wake up every day in unrelenting chronic pain, right. then it might be something that you're interested in trying. But this should be a decision made by patients once they know both the risks and the benefits. So how did that go? It came out, and I mean, I have a general idea of how it went, because if you are you're on the front page of uh, many newspapers for many, many days. Yeah. And, and so, like, I mean, obviously, you've talked about this a ton, so I don't want to rehash everything that happened, but... What was the big learning for you in all of this in terms of a guideline that came out? You knew there was going to be two very strong camps. Um, you thought as a group you had done a pragmatic, and for all intents and purposes, it's a very well done, very well done, very thoughtful guideline. When you look back, what were the key lessons from doing it? And, and maybe you can speak a little bit to, to, to some of the you know, issues that happened, on, you know, at least from the, yeah. from the point of view of the media. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it was it was interesting. I mean, a lot of the research that we do, you, you may know this from your own work, it does not get on the radar of the mainstream media. They're nope. not that interested. We try. It learns about, yeah, was, you know, yeah. methodologic advancements no. or the irrigation yes. pressure of yeah. this. Yeah. But this is a topic that was on their radar. And yeah. so all of a sudden I was deluded with requests to do radio, television, print media interviews. Right, right, right. And... I, I haven't been through any formal media training, and I'm used to being involved in discussions like this, where someone would ask you a question, and you do your best to provide an answer, yeah, and you're right. not really parsing your words overly carefully. Right. Um, and I guess what I learned there was uh, probably 90% of my interactions with reporters, 
they were just there to get the facts. Yeah. And when they reported things because their their timelines are aggressive, there were often small errors, but nothing too consequential. Yes. But in probably ten percent of my interactions, it it became apparent that the person I was talking to did have an agenda. And in some cases they came in very aggressive against opioids, and in some cases they came in very aggressive in favor of opioids. Right. And that's a different type of interview, and it's difficult to get your points out because you're interacting with someone who gets to write up the final version yeah, and have the final word. Yeah, right. And we had a number of experiences where we were working with, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of reporters in particular, and we'd see the story come out and we'd say, well, that's not what we said, really right. yeah, said yeah, yeah, or yeah, what yeah. we meant. Yeah. And you have an opportunity to write a letter to the editor afterwards to try to correct. It comes out two weeks later, buried on yeah, page 30. It doesn't have any impact the same and way. Exactly. So yeah. what I learned from that is uh, you, know, you, you want to try to engage with the media to get your message out if you can. Um, but it can be difficult to ensure that's going to happen. And I know one of my uh, conversations with Dave Sackett, oh, yeah, who right. was one of the fathers of evidence-based yeah. medicine at McMaster, yeah. Yep. Uh, and this is a few years before he, he passed away. And we were sitting at a pub, and he was going to moderate a panel I was talking on. Right. And he said, so what's new, Jason? What are you doing? And I said, oh, well, I did something. It's got some attention. I've been asked to do some interviews. And he cut me off right away, and he said, I never talk to the press. And I said, what? <laughs> you've, you, you, you've done way more important things yeah, than yeah, I yeah, have. Yeah, you've yeah. led massive studies. Yeah. You've influenced clinical practice around right. the world. And he goes, I go, why don't you talk to the press? They must come to you all the time. And he said, they always get it wrong. Yeah. And I thought that was an incredibly cynical thing to say. Right. Uh, but fast forward a few years, through <laughs> yeah, my own experiences. So you, you want to, I mean, I, I just to get into it. Is it Toronto Star? Where, where was it? Where were you getting all this... We were, um, we were reported on in, in all the major journals, journals. Okay. and in the, in in the papers, papers okay. and the local papers right, right, as right. well. Um, you know, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you one other, you know, sort of experience from this, which I found interesting. Uh, you know, one of the reporters who also happened to be someone living with chronic pain that was yes. using high dose opioids, they were very aggressive yeah. against us, and it was it was yeah. a sort of attack pieces. Yes. And one of the articles they's written was going to go to a magazine. Yeah. Uh, called the Walrus. Okay. And. The only reason I know about this is because the walrus person actually contacted me to fact check the article, oh. which almost never happens. Right. And so when they contacted me and we went through it, I said, well, actually, that's not correct. That's that that's an oversimplification. Here's what I said. They decided not to run it based on coming back to me. Guess who did run it in basically its entirety? The National Post. <laughs> You're joking. <laughs> so oh my so you, you have some periodicals that are... Yeah, fact check and some don't. Yes. Yeah. And, and you just have to live with that, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really... So what's your policy now? So you know, your next study comes out. Or you, well, you're, you're in... We'll talk about cannabis, but you're yeah. certainly another big, big topic area. Are you? What's your policy with media? How do you determine I'm I'm, I'm going to keep trying. Okay. I'm okay. going to keep trying, but what I might do um, is maybe what I do is I go through our public relations department at McMaster and say, okay. listen, I've been approached by this individual. I don't know anything about them. Is there any reason that I, I is there anything I should know? Do they have a certain track record of, you know, a certain That's type That's actually of- really valuable because we, we've had tons of those experiences where they said, oh, if you just come to us, we could have told you about this particular angle. Well, that's it. And, uh, I mean, okay, so okay, so you that, that makes a lot of sense. Now you're in the actual interview mm-hmm. and you realize early on this is 
going in a very different way than you expected, or the yep. or you perceive that there's an agenda. What do you do at that point, right in, mid interview? Because you've been in that experience. What do I, you do? I I have, and so when I've been in that situation, and I've been on live radio when that exact thing happens. Okay. Where as soon as it goes live, some the person is just coming after yes, me yes, aggressively. Yes, yes, yes. And I stick with it, yep. and I do my best to clarify the facts. Yes. I push back if I feel there's being some. Yeah. Uh, misleading interpretation of the information provided, yes. but it is difficult to get your message out. Yeah. You know, the the listener basically has to decide. Well, wait a sec. Who am I gonna right. yeah. believe? Yeah, you know, right. this guy or the guy talking about it. Um, so I think it has the potential to become less productive than if the interview is really out there to try to earnestly say, you know, explain some of these results and what the implications yeah. are instead of it's now an attack interview oh, yeah, and I'm brutal. spending half the time defending myself. Yeah, Brutal. Well, when you look back 15 years, 10 years, right? Go back, go back. Did you think you would be in the path you're in now doing the work you're doing? I guess part of it to me is that you know, no. you're, yeah, because I mean, I, like we met, gosh, 90s, early 90, right? 991, 92. Uh, I was only 10. I barely remember. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's somewhere around that, right? We met. And I remember you were, I mean, neither of us knew what we were going to end up doing. I mean, yeah. Like I still had no idea whether we, what, what, I was in medical school and you had just started too. I think you were kind of in your first, second year, I, I think. Well, I mean, we, this is in Toronto, so... It would have been back then. I, I mean, I, I might have been I might have been in chiropractic college yeah, then. Right, I might right, have been right. finished. I might right. have been doing a master's. But right. yeah, so it how, was far so, before this. So how? I mean, without giving you know, you don't have to you know give every detail. But how is it like when you're when you're in that moment? Because I think what happens right now, a lot of early career folks or students mm-hmm. look at themselves and already have a sense of okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. I and was never like that. Right. Right. I was never like that. So, but. I'm not sure that that's necessarily that helpful, you know, when you're early in your career to, to, to close all those doors. And and I wonder if, if you keeping doors open. So what doors opened for you, or what were in your mind the critical one or two things that happened that shaped where you are today? So the the so a couple of critical things. So one um, after undergrad, I went and did a master's in molecular genetics, and I was doing basic science research on yeah. the early stages of vaccine development. Okay. And it went well. Yeah. And a, 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 uh, a vaccine that I helped to develop looked very promising in the, in the animal models yeah. and in the skill, skin scent over, overlays we were doing. And it was purchased by a pharmaceutical company wow. for about $20 million. Wow. And my supervisor was really excited about this. And he said, listen, I think you should reclassify to a PhD. Yeah. And I'm good, you know, there's a yeah. lot of things yeah. to do here. But I saw my road getting increasingly narrow down that path. Like I was going to be focusing on a certain yeah, glycolipid, yeah, 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 on yeah, yeah. a certain type of yeah, cell yeah, for the yeah. rest of my career. For sure. And I thought, it's too narrow. I don't yeah. want to just do that. So I made the decision not to. Okay. Uh, the next thing I did when I was uh, finishing up chiropractic college, I was seeing uh, a lot of people coming with chronic pain. Yep. And I felt overwhelmed and intimidated. What do okay. I do? I, I, I don't feel I, I have enough to offer this particular type of patient population. And I could have just defaulted to, you know what, uh, just see you next week. Maybe I'll help a little bit. Maybe I won't. And I found that very unsatisfying. Yeah. And so I said, I want to learn more about this. I have to understand more about this. And so I enrolled at McMaster in the program of clinical epidemiology, it was called at the time. 
And I started learning more about methodology, research design, how can I understand research and contribute to this research. Uh, and I started using a lot of the sort of practical experiences I'd had. I was still doing consulting at the time yep. now for a company managing this, this, this type of uh, patient, but now doing research and reading research about it and starting to design my own research. And I think being willing to sort of jump into something uncomfortable and something uncertain and sort of learn something new and even change paths dramatically has helped me to develop the kind of career I have now where I don't feel uh, trepidation about expanding to take on a new challenge. I see it as an opportunity to learn more and advance sort of my understanding and the way I can help in a direction where there's need. So on that note, who was or have been some of the more influential individuals who have really shaped your career? Because I think that's important for uh, viewers to understand, you know, that sort of whether whether you want to call them mentors or influencers or collaborators who who, who was maybe give them one name or a few people yeah well it, it's interesting i think my career has been as influenced as much by encouragement as it has been by adversity really uh, so, so okay well <laughs> help me understand that part because encouragement we we get yeah but how was it shaped by adversity because i think that is where you learn about yourself i think and, yeah, and you know, uh, when the time you're 100% 100% and i've been in multiple situations, I would say, where I had to make a decision to toe the line, buckle to pressure, yes. uh, you know, back off something, uh, maybe even withdraw a publication. In, in one case, I was asked to do that. Right. Uh, or I had to I had to fight those urges and, yes. and put myself in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. Um, and for better or for worse, and certainly it always feels like for worse at the time, uh, I've tended to push back hard against that kind of adversity. Right. Uh, so that's been very influential because once you see that you're able to do it one time, the next time becomes a little bit easier. But I certainly have worked with individuals that have always felt the need to toe the line, keep their head down. It, it's a safer way to do it. Oh, yeah. uh, but you end up getting trapped in a situation that you increasingly have less control over. And the truth is, to some degree, when you do... I, I mean, the consequences of doing nothing may be minimal because you do nothing. But I think yeah. in the long term, you don't you lose who you are over time, right? And, Absolutely. Uh, whereas when you do get a chance to, and I'll use the word fight, but you know, I don't, th- I don't think anything I've ever seen you do is never a fight. It's more of a you are defending what you believe is the right thing, and you're standing by your own things. You have the courage to stand against someone else's opinion, which is totally reasonable. Yeah. When you do that, I think you become more who you are. Like, wouldn't I mean, if you just look at character building, wouldn't that be I, absolutely... I absolutely agree, yeah. uh, but there's also challenges and consequences to it, to sort right, of push right. back up against powerful interests. Right. And, uh, but, I, yeah, I agree with that absolutely. I, I think if you don't take a stand and push back where you feel you should... Right. Uh, then your environment will eventually overwhelm you and whatever you wanted to accomplish is going to become subsumed by the agendas of others. So that gets you now to where you are now. You're yeah. kind of your, your day-to-day. What's your, what's your typical day look like for you now in terms of your workplace? Are you where you want to be? And I know the answer, is, it's, a, it's a loaded question because when you ask yeah. someone that, if people say, yes, I'm exactly where I want to be, you don't really <laughs> believe them. I say, right. no, you, no, you're not, right? And when you say you're not, well, okay, why, right? And so I know it's a bit of a loaded question. No, but, no, but, but you're absolutely right, right. And, and the answer is no. Okay. Um, and, you know, every time, 
It's, it's funny, and I'm sure you know this too. Every time you've accomplished one thing, it's like, well, now there's 10 other questions that that's led me to consider. Or yeah. now I'm even more aware of what you don't know. another problem or what I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. now that I've done this, how do I push it out into practice yeah, yeah. and actually make an impact, right? Yep. P- publishing a paper, it's, it's, it's so limited in terms of what it's well, going to do. after a couple of hundred... Um, it, yeah. it loses. If, like, it's not a. It's you know. People say, "Well, I just want to get my paper. I want to get my grant." Well, the grant's important because the grant is money to do yeah. what you want to do. But quite frankly, you know, you, you take those two things out of the thing, you would still do what you do, right? You would still. And so the question is, where do you find your drive? If it's yeah. not spending a lot of time on the paper and a lot of time on trying to get money, where would you spend your time and how would you spend it? it becomes really important because we're not given the luxury sometimes of, of being able not to spend forty percent of our time just hunting for money. And trying to write papers to get the message out. But again, that said, now, like when you when you look at your life now, mm-hmm. how do you envision it going? In other words, what would you like to see? How close is it to what the ideal would be for you? Whether if you actually understand, you know, have a sense of what the ideal would be, an ideal mix of whatever academic, personal activities, whatever mm-hmm. that may be, travel things. How is all that working out? Are you working the way you want to work right now? I, I would say that it's, you know, I can't complain because yeah. I, I've been afforded a lot of opportunities yeah. and there's been a lot of yeah. interesting things I've done and I work with a lot of great people. Uh, but it's always tough to get that balance and it's always tough to feel as if you're making uh, as much of a contribution as you could be. It's always okay. difficult to, and I, and I think that's not a bad thing because that keeps me restless in okay. the sense that I, I want to keep pushing boundaries in different areas. So let me ask you this. I've done recently, like so you've hit something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is you said something that struck me is you're not sure you're making enough, of, like, a, a, as great a contribution as you could be. What's holding you back from that? Is it noise? And I, by noise, I mean, is it a bunch of stuff that if you can get rid of some of it, whatever that may be, would clear you up to be able to do more? Or is it more that you're just involved in too many things? Like what is the... What's the, I, I, what's I, the, I think it's both of those. Okay. So it's both of those. So <clears throat> when you do take on a position you know, at an academic institution, as you know, yep. uh, there's a lot of demands for your time, right? Yep. You're, you're, you're being asked to teach. You're being asked to supervise. Right. You're being asked to uh, go to conferences, to give yeah. talks, right, to, right, right, to right. You know, interact with the media, to yep. write grants, to do papers. Um, and there's always more to do. Yep. There's always more to do. So you have to try to prioritize. You have to try to maybe delegate the things that you can do. And when you start up learning how to do this kind of work, you're kind of an army of one. And it can be very difficult, at least I find, for me just to sort of hand off some things yeah. and, and, and really take my hands off them to the extent that it's not taking up you know, too much of my time and I'm still going to be confident it's going to get accomplished. And the other thing is that sort of always difficult challenge in balancing work life. You know, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's remarkably well, difficult. Well, let me ask you this. How many... Estimate how many hours do you do you believe you spend thinking or actually working around work around the issue of work? So, like in a typical week, every day, every day, every right? day, right? So it's well over a hundred hours, probably, right? Easily, right? So, and that's the that's the part that's insidious. So then, how do you when you look back at um, like when you've had a breakthrough idea? Do you do you recall when you get them, or they come randomly? Like when you get these sorts of and again, I, it's a little bit of a baited question because mm-hmm. I'm trying to get to: Are you getting them by doing more and more research? Or are you getting them sometimes when you leave it for a break and you go on to do some, whatever that thing is? More, that you may more do. so, leaving it for a break. You know, okay. sort of getting out of that little space where you're you're so focused yeah. and. 
you know, maybe I'm out for a, a jog. Maybe yeah. I'm, you know, skiing or I'm, you know, doing something with my kids. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the back of my mind, something might be sort of oh, yeah. mulling around a little bit. And it, it just has a, more of an opportunity to sort of go in different directions. Right. Uh, so I would say that's when I've come up with more interesting thoughts is when I'm not in such a focused, intensive work environment, but I'm, you know, doing something else yeah, or yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I have more flexibility. So let me ask you this then. What is a typical day for you like? So like, and maybe you can go from the point of view of, uh, you know, the time you wake up, basically, what is your routine? Do you have a general routine? And the reason I say, I've been asking, you know, most of the people who have come mm. in here about routines, simply to understand, you know, what makes, you know, you've definitely been very, very successful and you've been very productive. Um, is that anything to do with your routine? Um, it, it's, I, I find I'm, I'm always a little bit stretched for time. Right. right. There's always a lot of things I want to try to get done. Yeah. And I'm, again, trying to balance everything. everything. And the only way to do that is to create more time. So what do you end up doing? You end up getting earlier. Okay. So, how uh, okay, so, so like a day we give. So start me with an early morning rise. What time would you get up? I mean, it's, it's, I'm usually up by around 5.30. Okay. You're up at 5.30. And then yeah. what are you doing at 5.30? Like, are you, are, and the big question for me is, what do you do in terms of, um, any sort of connectivity to the world? Are you avoiding that or are you going right into looking at emails, texts, whatever that may be? At 5.30 in the morning, there is not much of my world around to connect with, right? <laughs> right I mean, right. My, my, you know, my, my wife and my kids are still going to be sleeping. Yep. There's yep. not a lot of people yep. at the office. Yep. I'm usually not at the office yep. that right. early. Uh, so yeah, it usually starts with a check. It's mm. like, well, is what's happened? Uh, what do I have to focus my day on? Is there something that's changed? And is that based on emails? That's all I'm asking. Like, like, are oh, you? Okay, okay. yes. Okay, so, yes. Okay. okay, so you do that. Um, I do that. And then you'll have your coffee and then you'll have a shower and all that stuff or you get up and shower coffee and then do that. I'm being, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. You, you how, want the exact detail. I want the, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I actually think it matters. I really do think it matters. Well, it, it, yeah. it, maybe it does. So usually when that alarm goes off, you know, and I set it quiet so I don't bother anyone else. Do you snooze? I do not. If I snooze, I'm dead. dead. If I you're snooze, up. I'm dead. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll keep okay. hitting it. So I okay. just, I got to get yep. up and I throw myself in the shower yep. and I'm quick. Downstairs. Cold shower, hot shower. It's a hot shower. Oh, not, you got to flip the extreme. cold, man. I'm, I'm not cold. doing it. I never, <laughs> I never want to wake up that quickly. Okay. Uh, okay. And then, yeah, downstairs, yeah. cup of coffee going, quick breakfast, plan out the day. What do I got to do? Okay. And um, that's your, and that's when you hit the emails, right? And, or emails and, okay, got it. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know. For better or for worse, we almost can't disconnect from no, the world, no matter where we are. I mean, right, I do right, right. I do a, a fly-in fishing trip once every summer for about four or five days with uh, my brothers, my yeah, dad, right. and we're we have and no been, access to phones, to this internet, has been going on anything. For decades. I remember you doing this back. I mean, you used to do this ten years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah. it used to it used to be we'd sort of drive in, and yeah. now there's there's so much American tourism that are coming to lakes that now to get remote enough, we're doing a fly-in fishing wow. trip. Okay. Uh, so you go away. Completely yeah. separated yeah. for like a week. And right. you can't look at anything. Yeah, you, there's no access, right? And and I think that that, as, that is as valuable a part of that trip as anything else we do yeah. there. It's just you are shut off from the constant barrage of information. But here's the point. Here's the point that I think is really like when you're not on it for days. Like you know, right now you think, oh, I can't, you know, if I get up first thing in an hour, I got to check and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. People, you're on it for days. It's, yeah pretty freeing isn't it like not to be on and, and life the world doesn't seem to collapse around you for not some so reason far. not, not so, so far, far right yeah so i guess the point is 
wouldn't that feeling make more sense, like to say, I'm not going to check for the first hour or do something in the mornings? And the reason I'm saying this to you is... It would. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't disagree. And, and unfortunately, yeah. we're just, we're so conditioned yeah, yeah, and we're yeah, so yeah. reactive and yeah. this is urgent and we have to do it. But yeah, I, I think it would be great to somehow work away from that. But there, there's competing forces. I just saw recently in the news, the one of the wealthiest men in China has now endorsed the, what is it, the seven-day, 12-hour-a-day yeah, work, yeah, or six-day-a-week, 12-hour-a-day work Because we're not working hard enough, apparently. That's exactly <laughs> it, right? So there, there's these competing forces. It's like yeah. you have to work even harder if you want right. to get ahead. But I think if we could learn to work smarter what? and and have more of those okay. breaks... So what, probably be a lot better off. So what's one thing you could do in your mind? Because you just said that, you know, you've got too much on the go. What one thing you could do that you think could actually change things for the better for you? Because it sounds like you've got a pile of stuff on the go. You're yeah. feeling overwhelmed with the amount of hours. You're working every single day. Yeah. That's not what you want to do. So no. what, what do you want to do more of that you can't do? And then I guess the question is what would – you don't have to speak to what you'd give up. But what is it that you want to do more of? I, I, I would say – I need to do a better job, I think, and this is probably going to be a struggle for my entire career, yeah. is prioritizing those things that are truly most important and not getting so caught up in things that aren't so, so important. So you say yes to too many things then? I say yes to everything. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Including this podcast. I just called yeah, you and you said, I, yeah. I didn't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Will you see how cathartic this is to talk about it? It's right? true. It's yeah, true. Yeah. But, but, but this yeah. is, it's very, very yeah. difficult to say no. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's the challenge. Very good. Can I have a thousand bucks? Yes. <laughs> anyways, um, so I get it. I, I totally do understand that you know it's it's a it's, anyways, it's it's a very very difficult thing to do. But when you do it, you cannot believe it took you this long to do it. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden, something you thought that was essential for you to be yeah. involved with intensely seems to go on without you. Right. Uh, people that you weren't sure if they were going to be able to take on the added responsibility oh, if sure. you stepped away a bit. Happens. Yeah. It's, they they it's, will rise to the challenge. Right, right, right. So right. I, it, it's something I have to continually work on. Right. And uh, I think it's the only way that you can get to a point where you feel you're not just running on a treadmill nonstop, uh, but you're actually getting important stuff done and you're giving appropriate amounts of time uh, to all the things you want to try to accomplish in your life. Yes, it has been really, really interesting chatting with you this morning, Jay. Um, known you for, well, geez, it seems like, well, 20, 29 years, maybe? It's unbelievable. Like, it's crazy how long we've known each other. And uh, amazing to see all the things that are happening to you. And I hope we can get out and do some stuff that is non-work related and maybe get some cool ideas to work together. That would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks Thank for you. having me on. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching Orthopod. Stay tuned for more episodes.